If you have a Bible, would you take it and turn to the book of Ephesians? Ephesians chapter 1, and we will uh, be again in verses 15 through 23, though we'll be focusing on the, the latter half of that passage, verses uh, 19 through 23. This is part two of, of a message sort of in these, um, in these verses, and I want to begin by reading the passage for us. So if you're there in Ephesians, um, Ephesians chapter 1, <clears throat> and we'll read all of, uh, all of Paul's prayer in verses 15 through 23. God's word says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I can remember as a child watching TV, sometimes a commercial break would come on and I would see this star with some rainbows sort of following after it. And you would see these words, Joshua knows what I'm talking about, they would say, the more you know. You guys remember those, that some sort of ad campaign? Uh, I think then some celebrity or someone else would share a little nugget of truth saying that if, if we all knew this specific thing, it would make the world a, a better place. Um, the more you know. It, it could be another way of saying knowledge is power, uh, that knowing certain things changes or empowers us. And while the Apostle Paul probably might not agree with a lot of the things that were stated in those commercials. Uh, He would agree that there are things that we need to know because those truths change us. And specifically, there are things followers of Jesus need to know, and it is its knowledge that he is praying for on behalf of his friends in Ephesus in this prayer in Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. Knowledge is what he's praying for. So this is part two, as I said, of a message on those verses. And so our big idea is actually the same. It's let us pray. Let us pray that that God would give us a knowledge of him and of all that is ours in Christ. We're praying for knowledge. Let us pray for ourselves and for one another that God would give us a knowledge of him and of all that is ours in Christ just to recap where we were last week to remember these uh, verses. Last week we began by seeing in verses 15 and 16 what we call the motivation to pray for others, where Paul says his constant thanksgiving and intercession for the Ephesians was flowing from his understanding of the greatness of our redemption, that's in, in verses 3 through 14, but also from the greatness of his love for the redeemed, the fact that God had redeemed them specifically. And so too, our prayers spring from from a depth of understanding of the redemption that God has accomplished and of a love for the people that God has redeemed through his work. 
seeing that motivation for prayer, then we said that the focus of Paul's prayers, prayer is knowledge. He is asking that, that God would help the believers know some things. We said that this knowledge is not simply in our heads and it's not a knowledge that can be acquired by effort alone. Rather, it's a spiritual knowledge that affects every part of us and is only given to us by the Spirit of God. One way I think to, to think about this knowledge could be to see it as residing in our in our heads, but also in our hearts and in our wills, we might say. Maybe you've heard me talk about this in relation to repentance and faith. So think about how we respond to the gospel call. We respond to the gospel call with repentance and faith, which are really two sides of the same, same coin, meaning we, we turn from sin and we turn to Christ. And as we repent and believe, our, our minds and our hearts and our wills need to be engaged if it's true saving faith. So what does that mean? Well, let's think about it with regard to repentance, head, heart, and will. We understand in our heads what sin is and the fact that we have sinned, that we have broken God's good and life-giving law. We also feel that in our hearts. We've, our, our souls feel a sorrow for sin and a hatred of it. And then we turn from sin with our will. What we understand in our heads and what we feel in our hearts leads to action in our lives. Faith is the same way. Faith involves head, heart, and will. We understand who Jesus is. We, we understand in our head his perfect life. We understand uh, his atoning death and his life-giving resurrection. And then our hearts are drawn towards Jesus with love and with affection and worship and adoration. And all of that leads to the moment of our faith engaging our will where we entrust our eternal souls into his hands, believing that he alone can save us. And if it's this mind, heart, will kind of repentance and faith that brings us into the kingdom of, of God, then the knowledge that we continue to grow in as children of God is also going to engage all of who we are. If you think about it, that's what real healthy knowledge always is, isn't it? It has to be true in the Christian life. There has to be a balance of these things. If we only engage our minds, then we start to, to think that Christianity is only about knowing the right things, which it isn't just about knowing the right things. But if we only engage our, our hearts, then we convince ourselves that what we feel is the heart of Christianity. Our feelings do matter, but that's not all that there is to true saving faith and to our knowledge that we need. And if we convince ourselves that, that it's, we only need to engage our wills, then we start to argue that Christianity is focused on what we do. Well, there are things that we do as a result of faith, but that's not all that it is. And so the true knowledge that we have, the true faith, the true repentance, the true understanding of what God's doing flows, it, it comes into our heads and into our hearts and, and into our wills as well. So this is the kind of knowledge that we're praying for, for ourselves and for one another when we say, let us pray that God would give us a knowledge, a knowledge, head, heart, will of him and a knowledge of all that is ours in Christ a knowledge that fills us completely, a knowledge that changes how we think and feel and live. And Paul tells us that, that knowing a couple of things in this deep way will, will result in the whole kind of change that we are striving for as God's people. So let's go back to, to Paul's two main requests that we pointed out last week. We, didn't, we pointed them out and then didn't talk about them. So the two requests are, uh, God help us to know you and then God help us to know all that is ours in Christ. So let's first think about this prayer. God help us to know you. God help us to know you. 
I think that's what's there in verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. This kind of deep knowing reminds us of relationships. So think about someone maybe after a first date, one person says to the other, I'd like to get to know you better. It means that this was fun and I want to know more about who you are. Or maybe in the midst of an argument, someone might say, you don't even know me. You don't understand. You're just listening to my words, but you don't know who I am and what I'm feeling. Or maybe we speak to our children when they're overcome with emotion and we say something like, I want to understand you. I want to know who you are and what you're feeling and why you're there. That's, and if we're in a relationship with God through Christ, then we want to, to truly know him in, in that kind of a way. The kind of knowledge of him that we're asking for ourselves and for each other is one that engages our minds. Again, it delves into the attributes of God and it presses our intellect to the, to the breaking point as we try to umber, understand and, and comprehend God's foreknowledge or his eternity or the fact that he never changes. It's, it's a knowledge that searches the scriptures in dependence on the spirit to help us understand what God is saying about himself through the, the stories of the Israelites or through the words of the prophets or through the revelation of God in Christ. And, and as we're delving deeper and deeper into who God is, we're asking God to help our minds understand him. But we're also engaging our, our hearts, our soul and our spirit. We need, remember, the eyes of our hearts to be opened, to feel the depth of who God is. And when those we, we love are struggling with the waves and the currents and the riptides and the undertoes of life, we're asking that who God is would penetrate not just their minds, but their, their hearts. We're asking that they would know how, that they and we would know how the, the love of God and the eternity of God and the unchanging nature of God and all of these things, how that infiltrates our hearts. How does the goodness of God comfort me uh, when I'm angry? with my spouse or with my children or with my coworker? How does God's patience teach me when I'm stuck in traffic? And so we're asking God these kinds of questions. How does his omnipresence help us when we're lonely or when we're tempted to sin? We're saying, God, I want to know you. I want to know who you are so that who you are changes how I live. And then we think about others that are in difficult situations and we're praying for them to be helped. How? By, by knowledge of who God is. God, Help my brother, my sister in Christ to know you in these different struggles that they're facing so that they can be changed, so that they can know you. And as Paul makes clear in the second half of the book, knowing who God is and knowing who we are in Christ overflows then into how we live our lives. Or as Paul says, the way that we walk. As new people, we experience a new unity and we walk in a new way. So we're praying, God, help us to know you better. And help our brothers and sisters in Christ to know you better because knowledge of God changes our hearts and our emotions and our actions. So let me encourage you again, as we did last week, to seek after this knowledge of God, to, to read the scriptures, to search out solid books about the character of God, to d discuss God and who he is as we gather in the church foyer or, or around coffee with someone or around your dinner table that we would seek to understand who God is and pray that he would reveal himself to us, always trusting that we need to know him with our, our heads and our hearts and our wills so that he can give us, and, and that he alone can give us that kind of knowledge. And let's pray for one another. 
Let's pray for one another in this way that, that Paul demonstrates for us, asking the God of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Father of glory to give each other a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Do you pray that for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you pray that they would have a, a spirit of wisdom, that they would have a revelation of who God is, knowing that knowing who God is is what's going to shape us more into his image. Beholding him is how we become more like him. Well, closely tied to this prayer of uh, God help us to know who you are is the prayer, God help us to know all that is ours in Christ. God help us to know all that is ours in Christ. We see this in um, verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? So do you see that there? Paul's asking for three specific things that we would know. The hope of our calling, the riches of our inheritance, and the greatness of God's power to us. Let's think about those things as we're asking God, help us to know all that is ours in Christ. The first thing we're asking to know about is the hope of our calling. What does that phrase mean, the hope of our calling? The idea of God's call is referenced back in verses 3 through 14. And so Paul is, is asking that God would help us to understand the hope of that call, the promise of it. And, and know that, that hope here is, isn't an uncertain hope, as we often use the word, right? I hope we get to have ice cream after dinner. I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. I hope the Cleveland Browns win the Super Bowl this year. These are not hopes that will never come about, you know. This, <laughs> this is a certain and, and solid hope. As Hebrews says in Hebrews 6.19, this, this hope is an, is an anchor for our soul. That's the kind of hope that Paul is, is talking about. When we think about hope in the scriptures, our, our minds might immediately go to, to heaven and the hope of the, the new kingdom, the hope that we find in the fact that God has called us and, and made us his own and welcomed us as members of his, of his eternal kingdom, kingdom, the truth that we will one day be with him, knowing him even as we are known by him, freed from the power of sin and death. D.A. Carson says that the hope mentioned here is nothing less than life in the new heaven and the new earth, life in the presence of God. It's a good hope. This future hope helps us, it bolsters us, it encourages us in the present. And yet we also know that the kingdom of God is not only future, but it is present. That because of Jesus Christ's incarnation, the kingdom of God is among us. It's not here in fullness, which is why we often talk about the already and the not yet of the kingdom. And yet even though it's not here completely, part of the hope of our calling is that we would see seeds of God's future glorious kingdom growing and flowering and bearing fruit here in the present and here in our lives. The hope of our calling is that, that as we live lives surrendered to Jesus, that, that it brings a, a newness and it brings a light into our dark and dying world, that, that our lives actually matter, that there's hope to what we're called to be. It's hope that our commitment to Christ, our commitment to his ways is not worthless. It's, not, it's, it's of eternal weight. I think this is why Paul uses similar language in Ephesians 4.1. That's the hinge verse of this book, remember. What, he's, what does he say there? He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner, what? Worthy of the calling to which you have been called. 
the calling we have on our lives as children of God in this world can be a little discouraging sometimes. We can look at our own hearts and we might wonder if we'll ever see the gospel fruit in our lives that we're longing for. We ask questions like, am I, am I living the way that God intended me to? Or things like, is, is everyday faithfulness in, in our marriages, in our families, in our friendships, in our workplaces, does that really make a difference in the world? Is, is the church actually fulfilling its call to shine as a city on a hill, to be the salt of the earth? I stood at the bottom of our stairs last night and I just felt a little overwhelmed, as I often do. <laughs> Seven kids will do that to you. But just by, not by something big, just by everyday faithfulness. Uh, simply seeking to, to be a faithful husband and a father and a friend and a pastor. And as I was sitting there, I was obviously thinking a little bit, at least Ephesians 1's in the back of my mind because it's Saturday night. And I thought, uh, this is what this is talking about. And so I asked God to help me know the, the hope of his calling. Not the calling of some enormous thing, really, though, right? Just, just the, the calling of faithfulness. Because faithfulness in your everyday life has enormous power. Reading the scriptures, praying with my kids at night, walking up the stairs and doing that, that has eternal value. Seeking to live in the fruit of the Spirit, that's a divine calling on our lives. Faithfulness in my marriage is of infinite worth. All these small things are important. That's the hope of your calling, that, that what you do in these little small things, that it matters, that that's what God has called you to do in this moment. It doesn't have to be huge. It's the faithfulness in these small things. That's the hope that we have, that it actually matters. And to all of our doubts, we, we need hope. Hope that the calling to walk like Jesus is worth it. And, and the hope that all things are actually moving towards this day of the Lord when we will finally rest, when we will finally be who we long to be, when we'll finally be at home. That hope keeps us going. And it's only ours as we pray that God would give it to others and, and to our own hearts so when we see one another ready to throw in the towel, just sort of frustrated by everyday things, we need to, to pray and pray in this way. God, help them see the hope of their calling. Help them to see the certainty that simple faith matters and that eternal peace is coming. And when we're, when we're ready to quit, <laughs> when you're standing at the bottom of the stairs a little frustrated, just say, God, let me know the sure and certain hope of this calling for this life and for the next life. Well, we're continuing to pray here that God would help us to know all that is ours in Christ so we move from the hope of our calling to the riches of our inheritance. The riches of our inheritance. Again, we saw this back in, in verses three through 14. Paul there spoke about the inheritance that the Spirit has signed, sealed, and delivered for us. It's an inheritance guaranteed by the sending of God himself to live and dwell within us. And here Paul is asking God that the Ephesian believers would understand just exactly what they have in Christ. That they would understand just how rich they are. Imagine with me for a moment a, a 10-year-old inheriting a billion dollars. Maybe you're close to 10 years old. Imagine inheriting a billion dollars. Now, a 10-year-old inheriting that kind of money, she might understand that she is rich, but she has no idea how rich she is. 
And so too, for we who have been given the riches of salvation in Jesus, we know we're rich, but we don't know how great this inheritance is. We don't realize all of the grace and the mercy that is ours. We don't realize all of the horrors that we have been rescued from by God's grace. We don't realize all of the blessings that we know now and that we will know in the future. But the more that we could grasp what is ours and what will be ours because of Jesus, the more peace and the more rest and the more confidence and the more gratitude that we would walk through life with. So we're asking God, Lord, help me to have a knowledge of the inheritance that is mine in Christ. Let me know the the riches that are mine. And this inheritance, it says, is ours in the saints. Again, Paul seems to emphasize that this is an equal inheritance among Jews and Gentiles. All who are saints through faith in Jesus receive all the riches of salvation in equal measure. And what a glorious inheritance it is, given freely by the Father of glory. So we're asking that God would give us a knowledge, uh, give to us a, so what are we asking God to give us a knowledge of? We're asking him to help us know all that is ours in Christ. We want, we want to know the hope of our calling. We want to know the riches of our inheritance. And finally, we want to know the greatness of God's power to us. The greatness of God's power to us. Regarding this chapter, Dr. Joel has shared with me uh, the illustration of an iPad. Uh, he was telling me that we look at an iPad and we th- it's, it's actually a pretty amazing computer in a fairly compact package. However, most people who own an iPad aren't utilizing all of the power that is at their fingertips. Most of us just kind of watch YouTube and send emails. (laughs) But there's so much more that this machine is is capable of. Well, why why don't we use that? It could be that we don't know the power that's available to us. We don't know all the apps that we could be downloading to change our lives. And infinitely infinitely more so is the power that's available to us in Christ that we may just not know. Whatever we feel overwhelmed by in our lives or whatever overwhelms us in the world itself, we have to see the greatness of the power that is ours in Christ and it's the power that that is according to it that finds its source in the working of God's great might through Jesus. That's the kind of power that we have. Did you notice that these three blessings uh, the, the hope of our calling, the riches of our, our inheritance, and the greatness of God's power, they, they get progressively longer. And now here, Paul expands on just what he has in mind when he speaks about the greatness of God's power to us. It's as if the text picks up speed as Paul seems to, to not take a breath as he's describing God's power. He gives us three insights then into just how great God's power is. And then he gives us this surprising truth about where that power is focused. So notice these three rapid-fire insights. First, the the, the power, the might that God has made available to us is the power that raised Jesus from the dead. The greatness of God's power, what is it? How great is this power? It's the kind of power that raised Jesus from the dead. It's resurrection power. Death is the great enemy of our lives and it finds its power from sin, which is the great enemy of our souls. And no one can conquer these two enemies on their own. In fact, if all of humanity united together to try and conquer death and sin, we still couldn't do it. But Jesus, through his perfect life 
and his sacrificial death has conquered sin and death. And the power that raised Jesus from the dead and defeated sin is ours. That's the power that he's giving to us. This power, we're then told, is also the power that lifted Jesus above all other powers. You might call it exalting power. I don't, I don't know exactly what to describe it as, but it's the power that has exalted Christ. So Jesus conquered sin and death, but he also conquered Satan and all of the spiritual forces of, dark, of darkness. He is the victor over the devil through his death and his resurrection and his ascension. Think about the Ephesians. They understood this kind of, the, the, these powers of darkness, right? Remember Acts 19. Luke describes people casting out demonic spirits using the name of Jesus but not believing in him. And then he talks about all these magic books that were burned that were worth this large sum of money. And then all of this sort of culminates in the worship of the false god Artemis that was the backbone of this whole city and the whole city's economy. The Ephesians were well aware that there are spiritual forces at work in the world. I wonder if we are. Are we aware of the fact that there are spiritual forces at work in the world? Because Paul is going to continue to remind us of this all the way up until chapter 6 when he starts talking about the armor of God that we put on to, to fight against all of these spiritual powers. I think we often relegate sin to just human behavior. We center it on, on ourselves. We're, we, we fail to realize the powers of darkness that are at work behind all of these things and what people are doing. We think about the big issues of our day. Think about racism or abortion or injustice or confusion about gender and sexuality. These, these, root, these sins have roots that are far deeper than the behavior of individuals. It's far deeper than, than the laws of a government. There are, there are forces of evil behind the ways that God's good world has been twisted and perverted. And if we're going to have any hope of being shining lights in in the darkness around us, loving those that are blinded by sin, then, then we need the power of someone who is exalted and lifted up above the powers that are behind these things, above the powers that are at work in this world promoting lies. The, the flip side of this exaltation power is, is maybe what I would call our third insight, and it's namely that Jesus' power has subjected all of these forces under him. So he's not only exalted above them, but they are all subjected underneath him. It's resurrection power. It's the power that exalts Jesus above all rulers and authorities. And here it's, it subjects all of these powers to his power. So we're thinking about unseen powers, but it's also the seen powers of the world. Any power in this world is in subjection to Christ because he has been exalted. Anyone who wields power in this world from Putin and Biden and Xi Jinping and Boris Johnson all the way down to the mayor of J-Town, they're all in subjection to Christ. No power is exalted above him. He is exalted and all rulers and all authorities in heaven and on earth must bow before him. Now, that's the power. Jesus, resurrection power. Jesus exalted over death and sin, and Satan, all other powers subjected underneath him. And this Jesus, God has given to us, and he's made him the head of what? 
of NATO, of the U.S. government, of the Democratic Party, of the Republican Party, of Wall Street, of the banking system, of some Fortune 500 company, of a television network, of a news organization. No, who's he the head of? He's the head of the church. This is the surprising truth, isn't it? That the one who fills all and is in all, he's the head of the church. That the church is his body, that the church is the place where he operates and does all that he wants to do through the power of Christ. It's like the highest paid NFL coach deciding to coach a flag football team in small town America. Or maybe it's like a a jet engine in a Volkswagen Beetle. The one who is filled with all power is the head of the church. What does that say? What does that tell us? It says a lot of things, but I think at least one thing it says is that God believes his people saved through faith in him are the greatest force for good and for his glory in the world, that that's where he's gonna work. That Jesus has saved us and he's made us his own and now he wants to empower us to change the world for his glory. So how do we change the world? How do we wield the power of God for the glory of God through the the church of God? I think it actually just comes back to what Paul thanked God for when he thought about the Ephesian church. What was Paul thankful for? He was thankful for their faith in Christ and for their love for one another. I think that's what he's empowering us for, is to believe and to love. Andrea read this to me earlier this week, or maybe she showed it to me and I read it but it's from uh, Tish Harrison Warren's book, Liturgy of the Ordinary. She writes, every new day, this is the turn my heart must make. I'm living this life, the life right in front of me, the one where marriages struggle, the one where we aren't living as we thought we might, or as we hoped we would. This one where we're, we're weary where we want to make a difference but aren't sure where to start, where we have to get dinner on the table or the kids' teeth brushed, where we have back pain and boring weeks, where our lives look small, where we doubt, where we wrestle with meaninglessness, where we worry about those we love, where we struggle to meet our neighbors and love those closest to us, where we grieve and where we wait. And on this particular day, Jesus knows me and declares me his own. On this day, he is redeeming the world, advancing his kingdom, calling us to repent and grow, teaching his church to worship, drawing near to us, and making a people all his own. You know, I think, as I read this, God may empower us to do great and amazing things from time to time, But in fact, the the great and amazing thing that he is empowering us to do every day is to believe in Jesus and to love others and call call others to to believe in him and call others to love one another. That, 
that those are not small things, but they're actually, it takes the power of God to do it every day. It takes the power of God to stay faithful in all of these relationships. Remember these words of George Eliot that I can't seem to stop quoting. The growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. Let's be honest, that's probably all of us. There's not many of us that are gonna have our names in history books. There's not many of us that are ever gonna have a Wikipedia page. There's not many of us that even may be remembered after many generations. But to live a faithful, hidden life for the glory of God, that's enough. And in fact, it's supernatural to be able to do it. It takes the very power of God to accomplish it. And think about this too, it's not just an individual call. We're in this together, it's a call for the church to trust God's power. It's a call for the church to display a unity unlike anything that the world knows and to walk in a way that astounds those that are outside of Christ. A, a church that cares for the weak, a church that loves strangers and aliens, a church that helps our neighbor, a church that reflects Christ in big and in small ways. And so on second thought, I think my NFL coach and Volkswagen Beetle illustration, I think those are no good. Because while the church may be humble, the task that we're called to is monumental. It's eternal. And, and if we're going to take the gospel to all people, if we're going to, to love one another, and if we're going to love our enemies, then we're going to need that kind of power. It's going to be impossible apart from the power of God to do that. We need to know the hope of our calling. We need to know the riches that are ours in Christ, and we need to know the power that is given to us. We need to know who our God is. And in Christ, we have been given every spiritual blessing so that we can do what God has called us to do. So that's our prayer. May God give us a knowledge of him and of all that is ours in Christ. Our hope, our inheritance, our power, they're all ours because of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And so today we remember what he's done for us as we take the bread and the cup together. What a gift it is to take up the bread and the cup and remember what we often forget. And so as you and I take the bread and the cup together today, let's, let's pause and remember all that God has given us in Jesus. In fact, let's take a moment of silence and prepare our hearts, whether through confession of sin or asking God to reveal to us these things that we've read about. Um, but let's take a moment of silence. And then if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if your hope is in his death and resurrection alone, and you've been baptized as a sign of obedience to Christ, then I would invite you to take this meal with us. But let's take this moment of silence to prepare our hearts. I'll pray and then Jordan's gonna help me pass. Father, you have shown us in Jesus what we see here, that a life lived in dependence on you, even if it's deemed small by others, even if it leads to what some would say an untimely death, even if it doesn't make sense to the world, Lord, that it is 
life-changing. It is world-changing. So we thank you for Christ. Thank you that he is our hope in life and in death. Thank you for his broken body and his shed blood. We pray that we would remember him well as we take this meal together. Ask it in Christ's name. Amen.